welcome to The Activator, a podcast dedicated to helping you develop confidence in strategies to share your faith. I'm your host, Josh Duell. It's been a long while since we posted a podcast because we've been busy planting a new church in Kelowna, BC called Praxis Church. We've now officially launched and things are going incredible. I'm presently on a week off, so I wanted to post a podcast for those who've been waiting for a new one to drop. I've had a number of you email and reach out and let me know that you've been excited for another podcast. And today seemed like as good a day as any to drop one. Uh, Today is Reformation Sunday, a day that Protestant Christians celebrate alongside All Hallows' Eve, um, more commonly known as Halloween, in remembrance of the Reformation of the Christian Church. 504 years ago today, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and the rest, as they say, is history. I love church history. I read a number of fantastic books on this over the years, and I regularly point those who are interested in learning more about the Reformation and church history in general to the amazing podcast called Communio Sanctorum. It's a history of the the church, really from the time of Jesus up until today, and it's a fantastic resource that I cannot commend enough. We'll have links to it in the show notes. Today, I have the pleasure of having the host of this great podcast on the show, Lance Ralston. He's the pastor of Calvary Church in Oxnard, California. He's a history-aholic, and I know you are going to enjoy the podcast. We're going to talk about a number of things, uh, but really the importance of church history for us today. Uh, Then we're going to zoom in and talk in particular about the Moravian and Waldensian church movement. Uh, This is a topic that doesn't get covered or even talked on in the history books a lot, but it's one that I'm particularly fascinated by. You'll find out why as you listen to the episode. We're going to talk about what took place with the Moravians that led to one of the biggest global missions movements in church history and what the church today can learn from them so that we can more effectively engage the culture around us. It's a great episode. I want to thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, Lance, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, glad to be here today. Yeah, I've been a, I've been a big fan of Bible history for a while. A fan of your podcast, Communio Sanctorum. Um, it's so good. I've been so blessed by it. Your podcast, it, it covers history from the time of Christ through to the present, which is great because if I'm honest, I, I, I've probably tended to focus my attention on a few certain periods, probably the Reformation. I'm from an Anabaptistic tradition, so really that 1500s time period. Uh, I've heard it said, you know, you can't be a part of where the church is going if you don't know where it's been. I'd be interested to hear what reasons would you give for for the benefit, the necessity of studying church history? What compelled you uh, really to do this podcast? Well, first of all, history is fun. I I just find history to be fascinating. Uh, I used to teach history to high schoolers, uh, U.S. and world history, and and I would always begin uh, the very first class by saying, who hates history? <laughs> <laughs> and usually about a third uh, to a half of them would say, yeah, they didn't really like it. And when I asked why, they'd say, well, it's boring, to which I would always reply, history isn't boring. History teachers are boring. <laughs> <laughs> history is amazing. Um, what's boring is all too often it's the way it's presented. You know, when, mm. when you have somebody that gives a long list of names and dates, uh, but good history, it tells us story, the story of what happened and how we got here from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians ought to know at least some church history because they can't really understand who they are and how they got here apart from it. 
Uh, we really don't. We really do stand on the shoulder of of giants. Yeah. Uh, another reason to study church history is because there's little that happens today that the church hasn't already been through. It could save us a lot of grief to know how past believers have negotiated similar challenges, uh, either successfully or poorly. You know, we can learn from their mistakes as well. Um, how Communia Sanctorum got started is is pretty simple. I couldn't find a short format podcast on church history, so I decided to do one. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found I, yours, <laughs> was oh, yeah. looking for the really? same thing. Yeah, yeah. I had just finished listening to Mike Duncan's genius podcast, The History of Rome, mm-hmm. um, and, and went looking for something similar in church history. But all I found at that time were long, kind of dry lectures from a seminary or Bible college and so I uh, decided to start studying the subject myself and simply turning what I was learning into short podcasts. And from the start, um, I've told listeners, I'm neither a scholar nor a historian. <laughs> I'm just a student sharing what I'm learning. And I thought maybe it'd be fun. Um, I, I thought, Josh, I thought maybe, okay, maybe a dozen, two dozen people would want to join me on the journey. Um, turns out there were a few more than that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh it's interesting. Um, you, you're not just a, a podcaster. Uh, you're not just a former high school history teacher. Um, you're a church pastor as well. You minister. I have a large congregation in California. Uh, I've, I've got a question for you. Like, how, how has church history informed your pastoral work? Uh, I, I've always followed the grammatical historical method of study and teaching. Hmm. And uh, I, the people of Calvary Chapel of Oxnard, that's a church where I pastor, they know that they're going to get a bit of history with most Bible studies, uh, especially if it's a narrative passage. Uh, but even, you know, the, the Paul's letters, mm-hmm. um, the letters of Peter, those are all, they're, they're set in a certain contextual um, historical period. And, and it's important to understand the history and how that shaped the content of what they were writing. Uh, a, a deeper appreciation of church history has informed my grasp of, uh, grasp of doctrine. Um, so when I'm teaching, I, I, I'm able to understand how the church came to believe what it believes. And I think it's important as a pastor, especially that you have that background so that you can you can share that. You don't always have to be academic or scholarly in the way that you do it. Um, but but the, the having that ability to be able to understand, oh, this is why we believe what we believe. Because Previous generations of believers have wrestled with these questions and and really asked the question, how do we take what Scripture says and in just the right words then summarize or describe what it is we believe? Mm, It's good. That's good. Um, You mentioned this, um, how history can kind of help ground us where we are when we can see where we've come from. I recently uh, had Dr. Robert Tuttle on the podcast. His book, The Story of Evangelism, is really kind of a historic look at a few different time periods as they pertain to evangelism within the church. Mm -hmm. Um, And lots of fascinating stuff um, comes out in his book uh, because you're, you're right. Like history repeats itself. Solomon himself said this, there's nothing new under the sun. So in your study, is there a certain time period in church history that, that speaks in a pertinent way? Do you think to the place we find ourselves in uh, our cultural moment today? Yeah, hey, Josh, that is a great question. Uh, and I'll be frank, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that since I'm not a scholar. I'm not an academic historian. But yes, I am a pastor of a local church. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and take a stab at that. Uh, mm. Because as a pastor, it's my task to lead God's flock. And, and of course, I want to be faithful to that. Mm-hmm. I think that we are living at a unique time 
when instead of finding ourselves parallel to another moment of the past, we're parallel to many of them all at the same time. And that's because the rate of change is so fast. Figuring out what cultural moment we're in seems moot because as soon as you do, you're into something else. Sure. The news cycle used to be two weeks. Um, then it was two days. Now it kind of feels, especially recently, like it, the news cycle is two hours. The world, <laughs> the world is kind of ADD, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's just, man, wow. So what I've been sharing with our congregation is, is how in the midst of all of the change, there's one thing that remains steadfast, and that is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just are finishing up studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter through First uh, Corinthians. And man, I, I realize Paul wrote that letter 2,000 years ago. What he writes in there is as relevant today as when he penned it. Oh, yeah. One after another, the institutions of purely human invention are failing. When the Roman Empire fell in Europe, the only thing left for people to look to for a semblance of leadership was the church. It was local pastors who ended up taking the reins of civil authority. And for the most part, they did a pretty good job of providing for the needs of the people as long as they kept the gospel as their overriding mandate. It's when the church shelved the gospel in favor of political power that things went sideways. And so, you know, yeah, saying what can we learn from church history that, that's apl- applicable to today Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Quite that's, frankly, everything. Yeah, that's really good. We're going through First Corinthians as well at the moment. We're mm. only, I'm nearing about halfway through the book, but it, it's so much um, pertinent words to speak to us today, really on um, how do we integrate with all the different philosophies and ideas and and, and worldviews that are um, really in our face. And, and we've got all of them. I think I think that's well put. We're kind of living yeah. in all of the historical eras, especially like where we're at here in Vancouver. We've got over 200 mm. different languages spoken. Uh, mm. we, we live in a radically ethnically diverse uh, and and um, socially diverse and religiously diverse society. So you've got people from this worldview, that worldview, um, all colliding in one spot. Um, a question for you, Sora, as this, as this church um, his, history um, Jedi master pastor figure that you are, what is it you think the church oh, no, needs no, to... No, 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 no. <laughs> what do you think the church needs to do today to begin to better engage with the culture around them? What what cues can we take from the those who have come before us? I think maybe that's the problem, Josh. In, instead of engaging the culture, reaching the culture, I, th- I think we've probably let too much of the culture engage us. Uh, um, th- th- this is what I'm teaching, it turns out, this Sunday in our church, in our last study <laughs> in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul, Paul says in chapter 15, verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Literally, don't let yourself be led astray. And then he says, evil company corrupts good manners. And he's interestingly, he's quoting from a 4th century BC uh, Greek playwright there. Um, but the best way for us to engage our culture is to make sure the culture is not engaging us. Mm. We, can learn, we, can, we can be observers of the culture, but we have to be careful about being influenced by that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, right now, in this cultural moment, what we're seeing is... A lot of our evangelical brothers and sisters are being persuaded by the cultural conversation, and and they're and they're being they're being uh, influenced by it rather than speaking the gospel into it. 
And I think that's a dangerous position. So the best way to engage the culture is to is to stay focused on the gospel um, and, and to learn how to speak the truths and principles and power of the gospel into the culture by being aware of the culture. But again, don't let that culture influence you, influence it. Uh, well put. Yeah, there's this tendency, um, I think, to maybe fall into sectarianism, where we we mm-hmm. cordon ourselves off from the world, or if we're engaging with the world, we can go to the opposite side of that pendulum, right into syncretism, where we, we're almost indistinguishable from the culture. And right. there, there's all sorts of studies and stats that we could cite on the state of the church today in that regard, but I'm so well put. It's, it's, it's kind of finding that middle balance where we're engaged, but not being taken over by... Uh, one of the one of the periods of church history I really want to pick your brain. I'd love to discuss with you is the Moravian Church Missions Movement. Now, I I came across the Moravian Church in, on a mission trip I was doing to India. I was up in Jammu, Kashmir, about as far north in India as you can get. Uh, and then it was actually your podcast that got me more curious about this specific mm-hmm. moment in church history. I I saw this church and kind of wondered out, you know, how did it end up? Being here for so long in northern India, the largest concentration of unreached people groups in the world. And I began to to research a bit, listen to your podcast, find some books. I, and I discovered the Moravians uh, were not only a, a, a global missions force, but they also seemed to hold Protestant beliefs mm-hmm. uh, before Luther, Calvin, uh, Zwingli. So I'd love to hear, what can you tell us about the Moravians? Who were they? Where did they come from? Okay, so I'm going to try to condense a long story into a short one. Uh, the Moravians owe their origin to the Czech reformer Jan Hus. Mm. In English, we often hear that uh, pronounced as John Hus. Um, <laughs> Jan Hus is, is better. Uh, he lived a century before Martin Luther, surprisingly. Um, Hus gleaned his ideas on reform from the Englishman John Wycliffe. Uh, a Bohemian noblewoman named Anne married the English king. And that opened a door for commerce between the two realms. And, and so students from the Colleges of Prague began attending Oxford and vice versa. Uh, Haas, who was teaching in the University of Prague, began to read some of Wycliffe's writings that these students had brought back and agreed that the Roman church had gotten off track. Hmm. So he began to teach the Bible in native Bohemian in a brand new hall there in Prague called Bethlehem Chapel, which I've which I've had the opportunity to visit. Uh, oh, I t- fascinating. Did a, uh, yeah, I did a Reformation tour uh, a, a while back, and uh, our, our guide took us to Bethlehem Chapel, Josh. It was, it was amazing. We sat there, and she, she gave us the history of Bethlehem Chapel and, and a quick review of Jan Hus. And uh, I, I realized as she was lecturing, as she was talking about uh, what took place in this room, that in many ways— Bethlehem Chapel was kind of the cradle for for my church, uh, Calvary Chapel, because what what Jan Hus did was he simply started teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter Mm. by chapter, book by book, and it it sparked a revival. In a language people could understand. In a language they could understand, exactly. And his his pulpit is up on the side of the wall of the building there. It's all locked up. And uh, as we were leaving, I I grabbed our, our tour guide and I said, hey, is there any chance? Is there any chance that um, the other tour leader and I could could go to that another pastor, a good friend? Is there any chance we could we could go into that that pulpit? She goes, Oh no, I don't think so. And then she says, Well, let me check. So she went, Josh. She went and she asked the museum director if it would be okay. And this lady said, Well, who are they and where are they from? And 
And, and this lady, you know, she said, okay, sure. And so she came and she unlocked it. And, and my buddy and I got to stand in Jan Hus's pulpit. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was Amazing. the best. It was the best. So anyway, he began teaching uh, the Bible in Bohemian. Mm-hmm. And uh, soon, a- as many people were attending his Bible studies in this really kind of civic hall, as we're going to Mass in the cathedral there in Prague, uh, paintings started showing up uh, around the walls of Bethlehem Chapel, contrasting Bible stories to the behavior of the Pope and church officials. Who sent his supporters, using scripture as their base, said that communion should be uh, served in both the cup and the bread. You, you may know that at that time they were only serving the bread. They didn't want to serve the cup because they were afraid they'd spill some of the blood mm-hmm. of Christ, you know. And so they started just getting back to uh, the Bible, started just doing what the Bible said. Uh, priests should marry. Indulgences in purgatory were out. And though Huss was condemned and executed, his followers kept growing and managed to repulse several attempts to wipe them out. Uh, one large group of them lived in the region of Moravia, there in southern, um, what today would be the Czech Republic, and so they became known as the Moravians and, and the Moravian Church. And that's wild, just this this Protestant, really, Reformation taking place there a full hundred years before Luther. A hundred years before and Luther, yep. So much, uh, obviously, Protestant church history owed to Jan Hus, and probably a name a lot of people don't know. Um, really fascinating guy. I, I also find it fascinating, so the Moravians um, predate Luther by around 100 years, but there's this other group, the Waldensians, mm-hmm. um, predating the Moravians by even more, I think about another 100 years. Um, I read somewhere that it was actually the Moravians that granted ordin or pardon me the um, the um, Waldensians that granted ordination to the Moravians um, early on um, after uh, who starts to kind of question some of the Catholic Church teachings and 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 um, kind of spark some some change in society. So uh, just as a right. quick aside, do you know what could we what do we know about the Waldensians? Uh, their origins in the 12th century, a good 150 years, really, before Jan Hus and the Moravians. Um, they were Europe's probably first large-scale back-to-the-Bible movement. Hmm. Uh, like many of these pre-Reformation reform movements in the Roman Church, the early in the early years, the Waldensians, they kind of tried to keep a foot in the church until the church forcibly ejected them. And, and then there were a few decades when uh, about half their membership attended Catholic services while, while secretly supporting the Waldensian cause. Eventually, the Reformation broke out in earnest, um, and they effectively, it was funny, the Waldensians kind of said to the rest of the Reformers, hey, welcome to the party. Yeah. <laughs> they had already been going, going for quite some time. But and of course, by then, then with the, uh, with, uh, the Council of Trent, <laughs> Um, as they, uh, as the Roman Church booted, uh, you know, the, the Protestants and the Reformers, um, anyone sim- uh, with sympathy along their lines was where they were ousted from the church, and and that's when then the Waldensians ended up they, living in enclaves, um, in, way up in the mountains in Switzerland, and and believe it or not, there were Waldensian communities in in the Alps um, until the mid nineteenth century. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I haven't come across that yet. That's really fascinating to me. And I also love um, mountaineering and climbing. So maybe that's a, um, my next Reformed History tour. There you go. Um, yeah. they, they sort of disappear off the pages of history to some degree, though, 
Um, I don't know if they folded into the Moravian church, um, but so the Moravians, a um, lot more um, traceable and on throughout the Protestant Reformation, um, they end up forming a small community of people um, called the Bohemian Brethren or the Hidden Seed in, in Northern Moravia. How did they end up there? You know, this, um, it seems almost like they're a little sectarian at first, like they're a closed community, similar to how Americans might think of Amish or the Canadians, the Mennonites or Hutterites. So how did they end up um, in Bohemia? And, you know, was this the case? Were they a closed community? Well, they ended up in Bohemia because really that was the origin of their movement to begin with. Um, the Unitris Fratris is what they called themselves at first. And then we know them as the Moravians because the, the, this was the, the church that settled in the region of Moravia, which is in the southern, you know, what would be now the, the Czech Republic. Um, but really, they became kind of sectarian because of persecution. Um, it, Josh, as you know, the, the situation in Europe was a case of, of muddled relations between state and church. You had the popes and the emperors mixing secular and religious power. Um, as opponents of the pope, the Moravians were on the outs with the pro-Catholic Habsburgs, and, and they are the ones that ran um, Czechoslovakia at the time. Mm. What, you know, what, 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 what later we will call Czechoslovakia, it's the, it's the uh, Bohemia is, is the centered at Prague. And uh, the Holy Roman Emperor uh, was there, Sigismund, and those guys were, were reigning from there, and they, they were pro-Rome. And so you have both the church and the state there united against uh, the Moravians. And so the, it was persecution that caused them to end up um, pretty sectarian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then something happened. So they're all living on um, Count Zinzendorf's land. Uh, in the 1770s, something happens. This closed community, kind of by necessity, um, suddenly springs outwards. Something happens that leads to a, a rapid expansion of the gospel being proclaimed all around the world. What what can you tell us about what took place? Yeah, so uh, because of persecution, they couldn't even remain in Moravia. And uh, so there's this persecuted group of, of Christians and uh, Count Zinzendorf, uh, who's up in Saxony, actually just over the border in Germany, he, he invites them, what's left of them and their community, to come and to live on his lands uh, in, in a uh, city up there uh, just over the border in Saxony. And so they start a little community called Hernhut. And uh, uh, so there they are. And uh, this is at a period of time when there's no real strong central leader uh, among the Moravians. And uh, they're living on Count Zinzendorf's property at Hernhut. And uh, they, they start, they fall into factions. Um, same, same thing that Paul deals with in first Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have one single strong leader. You have several weaker leaders, elders, and they each have their little support group. And, and so there's a lot of factionalism and a lot of fighting. And Zinzendorf, who is a genius administrator and organizer, he looks at this disorganization and he rebukes them. He's not even part of their group. <laughs> he rebukes them and he says, you know, what are you, what are you people doing? This isn't right. You know, you, you are the standard bearers for the gospel. And your claim is that you, you depend on scripture, but you're not living it. And so he rebukes them and, and, and listen, 
they were wise enough and spiritually mature enough to recognize he was right. Mm -hmm. And they received that rebuke and, and being spiritually mature, they said, what do we do? They said, we need to pray. So they began to pray. And revival was birthed out of prayer. By the way, Josh, as it always mm -hmm. is, revival yeah. always comes from a concerted movement of prayer. And so they, they set themselves to pray. And as they did, the Holy Spirit moved. And um, you might say they all were reconverted. Uh, it was a dramatic sense of the awareness of the presence of God. And uh, they all committed themselves, renewed to commit themselves to love and to serve one another in, in practical ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and they uh, they adopted uh, Zinzendorf's, uh, he, he wrote up a pact for them because he got caught up in this revival himself. And being the uh, administrative genius that he was, he wrote up a compact for them, which they all signed and they all agreed to. And uh, thus was born what we would call the, the modern Moravian missionary movement. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love that. Every good church, every movement needs an administrator. We're always looking for the leader, but it's um, the administrator that's actually making that happen. Um, I'm very right. thankful for mine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've seen some some photos of um, this town and uh, this area called what was the Lord's Acre. And there was a tower they actually erected where they would mm -hmm. go into that and they kept a 24-hour prayer vigil going for the needs of the community around them. Uh, the needs of the world and the communities coming together and and, and keeping 24-hour prayer going, pressing in, and the Holy Spirit falls. Um, and something takes place that compels them to take off in pursuit around the world of the lost. What, what, how do you describe this? Uh, can you? <laughs> you tell me. Can, <laughs> yeah. can you describe that? Yeah. I, 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 I just I just think that's the Holy Spirit. And it's one of the it's one of the marks of genuine revival. Josh is a mm -hmm. passion for the lost. Mm -hmm. um, so often when we talk about revival, I, I think what people picture is the lost coming to faith in Christ. But the word revival speaks of of the church coming back to life. It, you, mm -hmm. you can't be revived unless you've been vived. No, you need they, an avival they, first. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> And, and so it's, it's God's people coming back to life. Um, but one of the marks of genuine revival is, is this deep awareness of the need of the lost world around you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that's what compelled them. They, they took seriously Jesus's command to go into all the world and, and to bring the gospel and make disciples of all nations. So, um, yeah, it, it, I've been in that tower, by the way, I've, oh, I've been in that tower. Yeah, it's. It's, I would say, I would say there is a residual sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. There. Hmm. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. That's fascinating and um, challenging and convicting. I'm thinking of the words of Count Zinzendorf too, just challenging this disorganized, disunified people to come to that, um, to come together and, and mm -hmm. so much application for the church today, both individual churches, but the corporate church at large too. Mm -hmm. um, the Holy Spirit falls and, and then they spread out. And, and I mentioned, I came across the Moravian church in Jammu Kashmir region of India. Where do we know they ended up going in these missionary pursuits of theirs? I, I don't know all the places. I do know that uh, they were very successful and had a big impact uh, in the Caribbean. Hmm. Um, there were plantations uh, in the New World 
that had been set up. And, and the Moravians were concerned to take the gospel to all people. And when they tried to take it to some of the slaves that were working in some of these um, in some of these plantations and some of these uh, uh, farms, uh, the masters wouldn't let them come because they they uh, they did not want them talking to the slaves. And so the Moravians ended up, some of these Moravians ended up selling themselves into slavery. Wow. Yeah. So that they could share the gospel with slaves. Wow. Just, I mean, think about dying to self and making the cause of Christ more important than your own well-being and welfare. I mean, that that is remarkable. So no wonder they had a huge impact in the Caribbean. Um, and of course, it was from those uh, their efforts in the New World that they encountered uh, another famous personality in church history um, and ended up uh, sharing their faith with him. And he was a minister. And uh, you'd have to say he probably wasn't even converted. John Wesley. Oh, wow. <laughs> met them <laughs> another on a, famous on a figure. There you go. Uh, he, he had come to the, the uh, United States, um, was ministering uh, on behalf of the Church of England as a minister. Um, no fruit and frustrated uh, returning home, met the Moravian missionaries that were uh, on their journeys. And it was so struck by the sincerity of their faith that he realized, I, I do not. I do not own the same faith these people do. And that was instrumental in, in bringing him to faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> the minister coming to faith. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Th so this is, many have referred to it as the first large-scale Protestant missionary movement. Uh, this closed group mm -hmm. of what it looks like about 300 people within 30 years sent out hundreds of Christian mm -hmm. missionaries around the world, four continents, under 14 years, uh, how how did they wow. have such a global impact? Like, it, it's perplexing. Um, such a small group, and and, and mm -hmm. I think that's a, a challenge for any local church today as we look up and maybe feel quite insignificant in in in, in perspective and kind of in, mm -hmm. in consideration of the the global need. But here here we have the Moravian Church doing one thing: pressing into prayer, getting empowered mm -hmm. by the Holy Spirit, and taking the mission. Mm -hmm. And seriously, I'm wondering, um, do you know, did they have any sort of criteria for deter determining who would go? I, I can't, I can't tell you that, Josh. Uh, you asked the question, but uh, have you, have you uh, researched that? Because I'd be, I'd be curious to hear. I, I haven't found that out myself. And that, that's what I was curious about is often um, with so many missions organizations now, there, there's big criteria. We want people to have gone to seminary Um or done right. this or that prior to being sent out around the world. But I, here, here's 300 people living in a field who suddenly get sent out and have such an impact. Right. I, I'm just curious how they were discipling people. Yeah. Well, okay. So you, you mentioned at the start that you're part of the Anabaptist uh, tradition, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, we, we, they're often referred to as the radical reformers. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, so what that simply meant was, let's do what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Amen. I'm and, still and, for that today. That's yeah, radical. I, 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 let me let me just say, <laughs> amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that, well, that the, and that's what the Moravians were. They, mm -hmm. they were radical reformers in the sense of, here's, let's just read the Bible and, and let's not, let's not spin it. Let's just do what it says. And so there, becoming a Christian meant being a disciple. That meant being a follower of Jesus and being obedient to him. And uh, so, so there is this expectation that as you walk with God, 
you're going to be reaching out to be a blessing to others. I, I I wish that we could just make it that simple today. Uh, I think that if if pastors could 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 do that, model it themselves, and then do that in their in their ministries. Hey, folks, let's be let's be sincere and serious in our in our following of Jesus, and let's simply do what He said. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, mission begins next door. Um, oh, yeah. But but don't don't stop there. Uh, keep going, and wherever you go, you know, there's that that whole thing where Jesus we, we read in Matthew. Uh, last chapter there was go and make disciples, but really uh, it's in your going, make disciples. It's the yeah. idea of wherever you go, you're a disciple maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's a mentality. If we could communicate that broadly, instead of making just this elite sect of uh, Christians uh, missionaries, we're all missionaries. Yeah. Yeah. They're sort of the forerunners to the modern um Disciple making movements. I, I've, I've had the pleasure of getting to interact with some of them where um, two missionaries will go into a country with no Christians. They'll make eight disciples and leave the country. And those disciples are trained up to go on and make 10 disciples who go on to make 10 disciples. And you see this going on in Burma at the moment and just radical fruitfulness from this sort of idea. And it seems like this is what the Moravians were doing. They were um, equipping everyone for for the works of ministry ephesians right. 2 10 it says i mean we've all been um equipped and, and made for good works which god pre- preordained for us to do before the foundations of the world so they're doing this they're taking this seriously um sending people out and my my understanding is that there was also a large number of different protestant backgrounds um initially showing up on Zinzendorf's lands. Those are Lutherans, Anabaptists, Calvinists. Um, A quote from A.W. Tozer, he once said, the Holy Spirit comes because we're united people, not to Mm -hmm. make us a united people. Mm -hmm. And then the Moravians, it seems they they were a really united movement. They were united um, towards a cause. And, And what amazes me even more is they weren't just made up a number of different faith backgrounds themselves. They linked arms missionally with a number of different denominations. And and I think that's to be admired today. Many, many missions, pardon me, missional efforts um, might be effort, um, might be weaker because we have this need to, to draw lines around what's yours or ours. Uh, the Moravians did an amazing job of working together. Uh, famous motto of not of the Moravian church, but it goes back before then in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. And it makes me wonder, um, do you think territorialism's holding back some of the church's effectiveness at winning the loss today? Do you have any thoughts on that? Of course. Of course it is. Um, hey, Josh, keep in mind you're, you're, uh, you're asking that of a Calvary Chapel pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Calvary Chapel has been about as exclusionary as they come. Mm. Um, we, we often say that we are a non-denominational church, but many of my fellow Calvary Chapel pastors are about as sectarian and exclusive as they come. Um, bottom line, the divisions in the body of Christ grieve the Spirit of God. And um, it, it's sad, but it is it is the case. And um, uh, we, we need to break down those walls. Um, I, I've been trying to do that here locally. Uh, Josh, a while back, I, uh, I ran for city council. Hmm. There were some things happening in my city, and uh, I'm not a political guy in the least. Um, but I, I 
I didn't want to. I sensed the Spirit was telling me to. And so, out of obedience, I ran. I did not win. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, uh, that opened doors uh, to build relationships with people in my community. I never would have nor had I've had the opportunity had I not done that. And um, I'm so I'm involved now in um, meeting with other pastors. We have a weekly uh, prayer meeting that we have here with uh, about uh, eight pastors of different churches. And we, we actually like each other. We, we spend time with each other. Um, we pray. Uh, we're friends. Um, it, it, it all ends up boiling down to relationship. It's so easy to talk about people and hard to talk to them. But we, we need to start talking to each other instead of about each other and, and realize that so many of the things that we think are barriers and divisions, once we start talking to each other, are not there. They're, they're just really not there. We have more and far more in common than we do um, as distinctions and differences. And I think that it's, uh, it grieves the body, uh, it grieves the spirit, excuse me, when the body of Christ is divided um, over, over things that it really ought not be divided about. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I love that motto, you know, in essentials, unity, mm-hmm. in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. Uh, really some powerful application we can we can glean from the Moravians. Um, just thinking about like, wh- where are we not doing something or maybe even doing something new when we could be partnering with other ministries in our community to reach the lost. I mean, if it's really about seeing people come to the kingdom and not building mm-hmm. a little fiefdom, perhaps missional fruitfulness and the revival, the avival uh, so many churches are after is going to come when we link arms like the Moravians did. Right. Uh, the Moravians, they're, they're marked by unity, but uh, yeah, I don't know that that's something that we can say about a lot of movements today. An- another thing that marked the Moravian mission movement as I, I read it really stuck out to me was that um, people would often move into what would we would call intentional missional communities. Now, you mentioned um, people selling themselves into slavery to win the loss, but Moravians, so many stories I heard of selling possessions, living communally, buying um, big properties where they all live together and would support the poor. Uh, you know, They'd land somewhere to preach the gospel and then live in community and share everything they had. They weren't about building their own homes or careers. Their whole purpose was to advance the gospel and live all out radically for the advancement of the mission of God. Uh, it, it makes me wonder, is some of this American dream, mm. this self-pursuit, the, the, the dream of moving f- further up the, the, the mountain, having a bigger mm. pool, the, the second, the third car, the toys, is it killing the church? Mm. Uh, that's a, that's a massive question and challenge, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing can kill the church. Yeah. <laughs> no, Jesus, yes. Yeah. Jesus said the very gates of hell can't prevail against it. Maybe hindering uh, the church would be better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, hindering the gospel. Sure. Yeah. A, a wayward culture can negate the influence of the gospel. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. Um, but Josh, I would say it depends on your conception of the American dream. If it's if it's merely a selfish individualistic grab for the good life, then for sure it's quenching the gospel's power to transform. But I've always regarded the American dream not as something to be exhausted just in my generation. You know, um, rather it's a generations long project to produce a realm where everybody can thrive. 
And then each generation does its part to push that agenda forward. And nothing can do that better than the gospel. And from my study, while there are exceptions, I believe that was the mindset and the motive of many of the founders as well. And, and why they crafted the system that we have was a way to um, uh, really uh, accomplish human, human thriving. Um, whether you're a believer or not, I, I think, they, I think that many of the founders did understand that the gospel was foundational to that. Um, you know, we have this, what we call capitalistic system, um, but the, but, uh, the founders understood that, that capitalism could only work long term if it was moderated and shaped by uh, charity. Mm-hmm. Uh, c- capitalism goes off the rails when, when you don't have charity in play, when you don't have the gospel in play. Uh, with the principle of dying to self, right? Um, otherwise, it just becomes greed and envy that drives it. And that's unfortunately, uh, I think, what we see a lot happening today. But when you take capitalism and you couple it to the gospel and the principle of charity and and living to be a blessing rather than just hoarding blessing, um, then you, you have a system, you have a culture uh, that that provides the opportunity for the maximum number of people to thrive. Hmm. Um, so I, I would say uh, the American dream has, to the degree that it has been uncoupled from the gospel, yeah, it's it's doing damage. Um, and that is why uh, we need the, the church, why we need pastors being faithful to preach the gospel and not allow it to be hijacked by... Uh, false doctrine and worldliness. Oh, it's so good. So much, so much, so many good thoughts in that. Thinking through just the, the, that we're blessed to be a blessing. Some of those themes throughout the Old and New Testament. God, God mm-hmm. blesses mm-hmm. us so that we can bless others. And what a good challenge to think generationally and even go, um, you know, not looking to, for the blessings in our life to terminate just in us, but to think long-term, three or four generations out, think of a proverb says, wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And so just as churches, how can we be thinking linearly? How can we set a trajectory where we're going to have faithful churches, where we're going to have evangelists still um, spending themselves for the gospel? We're going to have people um, sacrificing their own comforts in order to, 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 to carry the gospel all around the world. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, you, you've spent many hours, many, many hours studying church history clearly uh, in some of the great evangelistic moments throughout church's history. You have actually, literally hundreds of episodes on your podcast. People need to go check this out. Um, Communio Sanctorum. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes too. But what would you say is the biggest thing that the study of history has has challenged or really impacted the way you do ministry or evangelism um, through your church in 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 California uh, that huge question simple answer um, by the way great question important question uh, I, the gospel that Jesus died was buried and rose again is the power of God to save. Josh, I believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a slogan. Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely believe that with every ounce of my being. And so I'm convinced that if we can start a new relationship with God with people, if we can lead them to faith in Christ and then encourage them 
to grow in that relationship so that their soul is transformed into the image of Christ, that it is the answer and the solution to all the problems in their personal life, in their home, and then in their world. I, I'm Josh, I, I'm, I'm, I realize that sounds sloganish and kind of, you know, the, the tradition, I, I, <laughs> I mean that with every ounce of my mm-hmm. being. Um, uh, I, I, I believe in the power of the gospel to save. And when I Amen. say save, I want people that are hearing this to understand when I say save, I'm not talking about just, you know, getting people out of hell into heaven. I mean, getting heaven into them now mm. to, to say salvation is a, what do they say? It's a crisis that leads to a process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, salvation is ongoing. It's every day. It's walking with God and being conformed to the image of Christ. So um, I believe that. And, and I'm convinced that we need, we need to be spending less time reading the ideas of experts and more time trusting in and preaching the simple gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He, he was buried to prove that he really died. And he rose again from the dead on the third day to prove that when he died, it paid for all of our sins. If he, if he hadn't risen, he'd still be in the grave. He'd still be paying for our sins. And we'd have no confidence that we were in fact forgiven. Mm-hmm. He has risen to prove that we are in fact forgiven and, and his resurrection then provides us the power to, to be free of sin. So good. So good. Just the gospel and a perfect way to kind of wrap things up too. Um, that's the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And yep. uh, what a good catalyst, what a good reminder for us um, here in the, the Moravian church and the history of how the Holy Spirit empowered them and the, um, the great potency that such a small little group could have, uh, what a great dent they made in the darkness, what a good, uh, great, great example they left for us to follow in. And uh, we have the assurance that God's word won't return to him void and the darkness won't overtake the light. So in North Canada, right. so we can be emboldened to to go and share the gospel with those around us and, and really a good challenge to be praying for those nations around the world, uh, those 2,200 unreached people groups that yet remain. So I'm going to link in the show notes to a documentary. Uh, it's up on YouTube, but really good. Somebody who wants to go in and maybe um, watch or listen to a little bit more of the history on the Moravian Church. Uh, before, though, we go, I want to ask you one last question, probably the most important one of the podcast. Uh, next time I'm in California, can I stay at your house? Absolutely. Okay, we have yeah. a spare bedroom and it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's waiting for you, John. I love surfing. So <laughs> I will take you up on that one day, but no, thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're up to and find your podcast and all of that? So uh, we call the podcast Communio Sanctorum. That's actually drawn from a paper that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote years ago. Mm. It refers to the communion of the saints, but um, uh, on iTunes, which is the main portal the iTunes store. Uh, it's uh, listed as a history of the Christian church. Um, the website is sanctorum.us. And if anybody's interested in our ministry here at Calvary Chapel, it's calvaryoxnard.org. So good. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Well, thanks again for tuning into today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, again, go check out Lance's podcast, Communio Sanctorum. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's a fantastic resource. I've listened to many of his episodes more than once, and I know you'll be blessed if you go check it out. We hope to continue to have 
more podcasts coming out in the near future. They'll come with a little less regularity just due to the fact that we're busy planting this new church. You can track along with all that we're up to at praxischurch.ca. If you have any topics or authors or subjects that you'd love to hear covered on the podcast, feel free to reach out, let us know, and we can try to set that up in the future. But until then, as always, be on the lookout for the opportunities the Holy Spirit might be setting up for you to share your faith this week. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.